and I can't stress this enough, is back. I am more than ready to assume the office of President of the United States. I am more than ready to take on the greed and corruption of the corporate elite and their apologists. I am more ready than ever to help create a government based on the principles of justice, economic justice, racial justice, social justice, and environmental justice. To put it bluntly, I am back. This is Hear the Burn, a podcast about the people, ideas, and policies that drive the Bernie Sanders 2020 campaign and the movement to secure a dignified life for everyone living in this country. My name is Brianna Joy Gray, and I'm coming to you from campaign headquarters here in Washington, D.C. On this week's Best of Bernie episode, we have a ton to cover because this was perhaps the single best week of this campaign so far. Last week, Bernie didn't just hold his own at the debate. Just two weeks after hospitalization, he won the debate, embarrassing all those prognosticators who opined that he wouldn't even show up. So last week, I sat down with Tyson Brody, research director for the campaign, to react to the best parts of the debate, which at best have been ignored by the corporate media and at worst were fully misattributed to another candidate entirely. More on that later. On top of an incredible debate performance, Bernie got a boost Tuesday night in the form of endorsements from two of the most principled, progressive, and popular candidates currently in Congress. Representative Ilhan Omar of Minnesota's 5th District and Representative Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez of New York's 14th. Thousands packed a New York City event Saturday to see Senator Sanders officially receive a major endorsement from New York Congresswoman Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez. He wanted to make his return to the campaign trail a big splash, and he did it with the help of one of the biggest stars in Democratic politics. And then, on top of all of that, this past Saturday, Bernie Sanders went to Queens, New York, and in the shadow of the Queensboro Bridge, across from the largest public housing project in the nation, on one of the most crisp, sparkling, and beautiful days of the year, in the most diverse urban area in the country, he spoke to the largest crowd to have assembled for any candidate in this campaign to date. Over 25,000 people came to Queensboro Park, with thousands more listening from just outside because the park's capacity had been reached. And a whole crew of us came up at dawn on a bus from DC headquarters to support Bernie as he announced the biggest endorsement of this campaign season. We wouldn't have missed it for the world. Glenn. What time is it? Is it is probably like 6. I'm frankly overwhelmed by all of the amazing remarks given on Saturday 
and all of the extraordinary people I met and was reunited with in the crowd. Doctors I'd met at a canvassing event in New Hampshire, folks running for local office, my Twitter roll dogs, and my mom. But for the sake of this podcast, here are the highlights. Now, before the rally began, I had the pleasure of talking to a young couple on a 10,000-mile road trip to Stump for Bernie. Because we're going California to Maine, then down to South Carolina, Georgia. We're hitting every state that votes on Super Tuesday or before. So what's your pitch been? It kind of varies depending on where we are. Um, so when there's events that we can go to, we join those, and we've done canvassing with uh, the field organizers or other volunteers. But we've also been to places that didn't really have much going on yet. Like we stopped in Salt Lake City because Utah votes on Super Tuesday. Um, and there was an event on the map, but no one was there to organize it. So we just kind of like helped the volunteers who showed up and did some farmer's market canvassing. I think the main things that I've noticed that is not captured on like the news is that most people that we've talked to are like either on the fence, they're, they're undecided still, or if they're like leaning towards somebody, they still love Bernie. That's that's one of the, the, the main threads that brings everybody together is they're like, I, I literally had someone in New Hampshire the other day said, I love, 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 love Bernie. However, I just wish that he was in a 40 year younger body. And, and then she said, and for me, that's Mayor Pete right now. And I was like, okay, and then, but you know what? I show I, I showed her like we, we we have a one one sheeter double sided piece of paper that has like Bernie's the only candidate and then like a dozen things that he's the only candidate on and then on the other side has got all the polls that they don't show you and I showed her that and she's like yeah you know I love Bernie I might just vote for him you know so I mean people are like these polls they say oh you know 20% are going for whoever whoever they're ready to go back to Bernie it's just they just need to be you know looked in the eye and and reminded. A little bit later, I spoke to a young woman named Lucia de la Roca, who really embodied the spirit of the typical person I meet at rallies insofar as her personal life experiences directly informed her support for the candidate. Yeah, so I have this Bernie tattoo because on this exact spot because I know people that have scars on their arms because they've been they've been so feeling despair that they'll cut their arms. And then I know people that have passed away from heroin because they couldn't deal with the pain. You know, it's called the disease of despair, Bernie said. But I got this right here because whenever I'm feeling the stress of this injustice and, and this economic inequality and what it does to families, you know, I look down at it and I'm reminded of a man, 78-year-old senator who's always been real and unafraid of the establishment. And what he says, he says, despair is not an option. So he motivates me and he keeps me focused. He keeps me fired up, you know, like as if to know that I'm not a loser. The system is set up to make us feel like we are. But Bernie, you know, makes fills me up with that passion and that fire. And so, you know, when I look at it, you know, I just get that that tiger feeling in me. Like it's set up. It's set up for us to feel like, you know, like we need to give up. But now when I look at this tattoo, it really is hard for us foster kids. And, and Bernie has been fighting for us the whole time. Like he's been fighting for our parents. A lot of us didn't want to get taken away from our parents. We were only taken away because our parents were the working poor and couldn't take care of us. And it was, it was called neglect. You know, so that's why I have so many reasons why I love Bernie. But yes, I'm a former foster youth, you know, and uh, Latina. But most importantly, 
you know, I'm a poor American kid, a child of working poor kids, and you know, I'm glad that they they taught me about these social things when I was like a young kid. So then I learned about Dr. King, and I've been that's the standard. What was so extraordinary about my conversation with Lucia is how closely her sentiments were echoed in AOC's speech. The reason she said she was supporting Bernie is because her whole life, Bernie had been supporting her. Last February, I was working as a waitress in downtown Manhattan at a taqueria. I worked shoulder to shoulder with undocumented workers who often worked harder and hardest for the least amount of money. I was on my feet working 12-hour days with no structured breaks. I didn't have health care. I wasn't being paid a living wage. And I didn't think that I deserved any of those things. Because that, because that is the script that we tell working people here and all over this country, that your inherent worth and value as a human being is dependent on an income that another person decided to underpay us. But what we're here to do is to turn around that very basic logic. It wasn't until I heard of a man by the name of Bernie Sanders that I began to question and assert and recognize my inherent value as a human being that deserves health care, housing, education, and a living wage. Now, I was born across this river in the boogie down. And like many first, second, and third generation Americans, I grew up between two worlds in multiple contexts. My mom was born in Puerto Rico. My dad was born in the South Bronx while the Bronx was burning. And again, let's listen to our history. My dad was born when the Bronx was burning, when landlords began to turn into arsonists because the insurance payouts were more valuable than the families that lived inside those buildings. Now, that was the backdrop by which my parents started their lives. And the backdrop upon which I started mine was in a one-bedroom apartment in Parkchester in the Bronx. They worked hard. We had a mattress on the floor and a crib in the closet, and that's how we started our American dream. Now, it was shortly after that that my mom and my dad looked at the quality of education in the Bronx. And they looked 
at 50% dropout rates. They looked at the inequity of education, the inequity of education funding, the fact that teachers weren't paid, the fact that kids weren't given their, their tools to succeed, and that Frankly, it not only had to do with their income, but it had to do with their melanin too. And so they made, and my family made a really hard decision. And my whole family chipped in to buy a small house about 40 minutes north of here. And that's when I got my first taste of a country who allows their kids' destiny to be determined by the zip code that they are born in. And so much of my life was shuttled between these two worlds. And not just the two worlds between the Bronx and Westchester County, but the continental US, New York State, and the realities of Puerto Rico, where my family is too. And we saw the distinctions between these two worlds. I grew up where income inequality was an ingrained fact of life of my childhood. And it took everything in us to try to give that next generation a chance. When I was 18, my dad died of cancer. And all of the work that we did in a generation like that was wiped out. And I know that that story isn't just mine. It's all of our story. We are all always, it feels like just one accident away from everything falling apart. And we have to change the fundamental logic of a system and a politics that puts corporate profit ahead of all human and planetary costs. But when you rewind on that story, when I was a baby, my family relied on Planned Parenthood for prenatal care. Then, Bernie Sanders fought for me. When I was growing up, and education was being gutted for kids in the quote-unquote wrong zip code, Bernie Sanders fought for us. When I was a child that relied on CHIP so that I could see a doctor, Bernie Sanders fought for a single-payer health care system. When the federal government decided to discriminate and abandon my queer family and friends, Bernie Sanders was putting his career on the line for us. When I was a waitress and when it was time for me to graduate college with student debt, Bernie Sanders was the, one of the only ones that said no person should be graduating with life-crushing debt at the start of their lives. Bernie Sanders did not do these things because they were popular. And that's what we need to remember. He did these, this, and he fought 
for these aims and these ends when they came at the highest political cost in America. No one wanted to question this system. And in 2016, he fundamentally changed politics in America. I'm proud to say that the only reason that I had any hope in launching a long shot campaign for Congress is because Bernie Sanders proved that you can run a grassroots campaign and win in an America where we almost thought it was impossible. Now, I know Representative Ocasio-Cortez and Bernie Sanders were obviously the headliners. But guys, the Bernie bench is deep. Here's documentary filmmaker Michael Moore with a barn-burning turn about how Bernie's lifetime of experience is anything but a weakness. The powers that be are very unhappy that you're here. They're very unhappy that Bernie is back. And so they are doing everything they can come up with to get people to think differently about Bernie, to get people repeating their tropes. We know what they are, we heard them, they want everybody to repeat them. They got all the pundits repeating it on the news. And now they want, they want the average American repeating it. So what do they say? Bernie's too old. Bernie's too old. Yeah? yeah? Well, here's, well, here's what's too old. The, the electoral college is old. That's too old. A $7.25 million wage. That's too old. Women not, not being paid, paid the same as men. And you know why that's a gift? What has a 78-year-old seen? They've seen, Bernie has seen, but things many of us have never seen. A pay raise. How about that? A 78-year-old knows what a raise is. A 78-year-old knows what a pension is. Pensions. Remember? Look it up. A 78-year-old knows what it looks like to defeat fascism and white supremacy. A 78-year-old knows 
without saying that campaign co-chair, Senator Nina Turner, brought the house down. And when I say, Queens, that there's nobody quite like Senator Bernard Sanders, I mean that. We got some folks in mainstream and the neoliberal side who really can't understand the difference. But I'm gonna break this down for you. There are many copies. There are people who didn't have the same guts and the same courage as Senator Bernie Sanders to run in 2016. There are some people who sat on the sideline when it was hard. There was only one person who stood up to the establishment and his name is Bernard Sanders. So, oh yeah. We got a lot of copies. There's only one candidate in 2016 who told the multi-millionaires and billionaires in this country, keep your money, I'll raise my money with the people. There's only one candidate who's been marching with the working class people, not because he's running for president, but because it's right. Hello, Marriott workers. Hello, Amazon workers. Verizon workers. Hello, teachers. Come on, somebody. And I don't know about you, but I hail from a tradition that says that you will know the tree by the fruit that it bears. And Senator Bernie Sanders bears good fruit. So there are many copies. People want to talk about a framework. People who stand up in other folks' living rooms and say to them, multi-millionaires and billionaires, that nothing will fundamentally change for you. Well, Queens, I got a message. If nothing fundamentally changes for multi-millionaires and billionaires, then nothing fundamentally changes for you and you and you and you. Now, for the main event, I want us to focus on a particularly poignant section of Bernie's speech. I highly recommend you watch the entire rally on Bernie's YouTube page. Mayor Yulin Cruz's speech was also amazing, and Bernie's speech did a terrific job of laying out the extraordinary scope of what this movement will accomplish. But this section at the end, well, it really captured the spirit of how it felt to be there that day, how it feels to be a part of this movement, and why it is that the people are going to win. I want you all to take a look around and find someone you don't know. Maybe somebody who doesn't look kind of like you. Maybe somebody who might be of a different religion than you. Maybe they come from a different country. My question now to you 
is are you willing to fight for that person who you don't even know as much as you're willing to fight for yourself? to stand together and fight for those people who are struggling economically in this country. Are you willing to fight for young people drowning in student debt, even if you are not? Are you willing to fight to ensure that every American has health care as a human right, even if you have good health care. Are you willing to fight for frightened immigrant neighbors, even if you are native born? Are you willing to fight for a future for generations of people who have not yet even been born, but are entitled to live on a planet that is healthy and habitable. Because if you are willing to do that, if you are willing to love, if you are willing to fight for a government of compassion and justice and decency, if you are willing to stand up to Trump's desire to divide us up, if you are prepared to stand up to the greed and corruption of the corporate elite, if you and millions of others are prepared to do that, there is no doubt in my mind that not only will we win this election, but together we will transform this country. Thank you all very much. So much top-notch stuff has happened in the last week that it feels almost like a throwback to talk about the debate. But let's not forget, Bernie won that too. I sat down with Tyson Brody, research director for the campaign, to make sure that none of the extremely substantive arguments that he made that night go overlooked. After all, it's incumbent on us to pick up those arguments and share them with everyone in our lives who stand to benefit from this movement's success. We are here to do a post-debate recap. Let's get started. Well, as somebody who wrote the damn bill, as I said, let's be clear. Under the Medicare for All bill that I wrote, Premiums are gone. Co-payments are gone. Deductibles are gone. All out-of-pocket expenses are gone. We're going to do better than the Canadians do, and that is what they have managed to do. At the end of the day, the overwhelming majority of people will save money on their health care bills. But I do think it is appropriate to acknowledge that taxes will go up. They're going to go up significantly for the wealthy. And for virtually everybody, the tax increase they pay will be substantially less, substantially less than what they were paying for premiums and out-of-pocket expenses. There's been a lot of healthcare discussion at these mm. debates. The punditry post-debate largely talked about how it was almost 
boring to them. And Bernie gets this a lot, right? Like, why yeah. are you talking about the same thing? Why in all these debates do we end up talking about healthcare? I think moments like this is why it's actually not boring at all. Because it's not in, in the midst of all the back and forth to hear a clear statement about what Medicare for all actually entails instead of just the endless discourse about how to pay for it. I think it's really striking. Yeah. I mean, I know people are bored because they don't want to keep talking about like, well, in their view, how scary or complicated Medicare for all is. But we have to take this chance, and Bernie does, to speak clearly to the American people. Medicare for all is what we need, and Medicare for all is what's going to be much better for the vast majority of Americans. Two uh, economists from, I think, University of California, Berkeley, just released a study showing that 93% of Americans are going to pay less taxes overall under a Bernie Sanders administration. That includes after passing Medicare for all. And everyone wants to talk about like, Oh, but our middle class tax is going to go up or blah, blah, blah. But no one asks everyone, like everyone else on stage, for instance, that are like, oh, well, how much are you going to charge premiums? Are right. premiums taxes? Right. And there was a, the the kind of more moderate cohort really came out in force in this debate. The Klobuchars and the Buddha judges of the world really tried to take a swing. But nobody asked them what they're going to do about the millions of people left uninsured. Nobody asked them what they're going to do about the high cost of premiums. And remember... Rising premium costs is a is a huge thing that Donald Trump ran on. And he was accurate in his assessment of the fact that premiums have gone up and the average American family is paying $20,000 a year in premium. So they're having this debate back and forth about maybe $5,000 of taxes, hypothetically, going up. And no one's having a conversation about the tens of thousands of dollars that the, Americans are, the American family is paying under the status it's, quo. Joe Biden likes to tell you, that if you pass Medicare for all, it's going to come out of your paycheck. Newsflash. <laughs> That's where healthcare already comes from. Out of your paycheck. We just want to take less and give you more than join the rest of the you know industrial world and yeah. saying we can guarantee healthcare as a human right. Yeah. I get a little to. bit tired, I must say, of people defending a system which is dysfunctional, which is cruel. 87 million uninsured 30,000 people dying every single year, 500,000 people going bankrupt. For what reason? They came down with cancer. I will tell you what the issue is here. The issue is whether the Democratic Party has the guts to stand up to the healthcare industry, which made $100 billion in profit, whether we have the guts to stand up to the corrupt, price-fixing pharmaceutical industry, which is charging us the highest prices in the world for prescription drugs. And if we don't have the guts to do that, if all we can do is take their money, we should be ashamed of ourselves. Line of the night. That's it. I mean, I don't know how much more like concisely you can put it. What else are we doing if we aren't trying to make things better for people? Like, why would you run for president and says like, look, I get it. Our healthcare system's terrible. It's really bad. What if I made it slightly less bad, but only maybe? Yeah. I mean, this this quote and the framing it up in these moral terms, the way that he's done, mm-hmm. it really silences everyone on the stage because what is there to say when you elevate human dignity as what's at stake here? Moreover, the if it's a if it's a sound sound grab that was so good, a quote so good <laughs> that it was misattributed to another candidate in the race in at least three publications last week. I mean, everyone wanted a piece of it. <laughs> look, I, I saw some people were a little teed off because, you know, cr- criticized the Democratic Party. But let's be honest. We passed the Affordable Care Act in 2010. We had a preemptive 
surrender to the pharmaceutical industry, the idea that they would not attack it. And what did they do? They still attacked it. They're still charging more than anyone else on the planet. And frankly, deductibles have gone up. Co-pays have gone up. Healthcare is more expensive and more people are paying more for less. I think that's a really important point because I think the people on stage who are arguing for kind of Medicare for all who want it and other plans that carve out protections for the private insurance industry, what you're doing is ostensibly setting up an opportunity for them to keep a foothold and fight back against the kinds of changes that we actually want. And that's what we saw in 2010, 2012. And that's what we're going to see as long as we basically preemptively cater to allowing them to have a room to still defeat programs that are actually geared not toward profits, but toward helping Americans. We were one Republican senator away from having Obamacare repealed. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. I, there, there's nothing left to say. If we're going to make change, let's make real change. Let's make change that helps everyone in America. Let's make the choice that it's not how many choices you have. Let's give everyone the good plan. Income inequality is growing in the United States at an alarming rate. The top 1% now own more of this nation's wealth than the bottom 90% combined. Senator Sanders, when you introduced your wealth tax, which would tax the assets of the wealthiest Americans, you said, quoting you, Senator, billionaires should not exist. Is the goal of your plan to tax billionaires out of existence? When you have a half a million Americans sleeping out on the street today, when you have 87 people, 87 million people uninsured or underinsured, when you got hundreds of thousands of kids who cannot afford to go to college and millions struggling with the oppressive burden of student debt, and then you also have three people owning more wealth than the bottom half of American society, that is a moral and economic outrage and the truth is, we cannot afford to continue this level of income and wealth inequality, and we cannot afford a billionaire class whose greed and corruption has been at war with the working families of this country for 45 years. So if you're asking me, do I think we should demand that the wealthy start paying the wealthiest, top one-tenth of one percent, start paying their fair share of taxes, so we can create a nation and a government that works for all of us. Yes, that's exactly what I believe. Thank you, Senator. That's why I love Bernie Sanders. Yeah. I mean, that, was, that question is really like, hey, Bernie, what have you been saying your <laughs> entire career? Because, I mean, this really, this is it. I mean, what is the point of billionaires? And, you know, people will say, well, I might become a billionaire. Some, you're, you don't become a billionaire. Let's let's be clear. 60% of wealth in society is inherited. Mm. It is just, we, we are living in an aristocracy yeah. and you just don't know it. You know, the, when he's talking about the three families that own more than half of, you know, more wealth than the bottom half of American society, talking about the Waltons. Yeah. Sam Walton, who created Walmart, has passed. It is his all his children, his grandchildren that are just living off of basically your money that has gone into his store. Yeah. There's like the idea that I, we have to be more worried about the marginal tax rates of 400 families in America when people are dying because they can't get health care, when people yeah. are starving because they have no money, when people are just depressed and have nowhere to go and nowhere to find help. 
and I'm supposed to be worried about the Waltons? My God. Amen, brother. Yeah. <laughs> Amen. <laughs> Couldn't say better than that. I will. I do want to say, though, the little smile that creeped up on his face as he was being <laughs> asked the question, that delight in being able to just lay down the hatchet on what you've been saying for your entire life. I felt that too, Bernie. Although, let's be clear. <laughs> the question was, do you think there should be billionaires? Right. Oh, how? Oh, God. Right. Would they only have hundreds of millions of dollars? What would they ever spend it on? When we talk about a rigged economy, it's not just the grotesque level of income and wealth inequality. It is also the fact that in sector after sector, whether it is Wall Street, where you have six banks that have assets equivalent to half of the GDP of the United States, whether it is medium, where you have 10 media companies that control about 90% of what the American people see, hear, or read. Whether it is agribusiness, where we see merger after merger, which is resulting in the decline of family-based farming in this country. We need a president who has the guts to appoint an attorney general who will take on these huge monopolies, protect small business, and protect consumers by ending the price fixing, Thank which you, you see every day. So this actually plays into a, a plan that you know Bernie released right before the debate, our mm. corporate accountability and worker ownership plan, where as part of it, we have a very strong, by far the strongest antitrust plank in the field where you know, we are going to review every merger, every you know, acquisition that occurred during the Trump era and you know see if it was anti-competitive because Lord knows uh, that Trump Department of Justice raises some questions. But the important part of that, this is, and this is about the entire corporate accountability plan, which is, you know, going to give workers up to 20% ownership of their companies. Yeah. It's going to eliminate the tyranny of asset managers. It's going to force democracy, you know, not just in the ballot box, but into the boardroom. And it's because, you know, uh, there's a lot of good plans. A lot of people have proposed, like, great regulations and stuff, but... You can only propose so many rules for the ruling class if the ruling class isn't going to follow the rules. Right. What we need to do, and this is what Bernie's about, this is why you, you know, do antitrust, this is why you break up companies, is that you need to shift power back to the working class so they have the ability to enforce the rules that are already on the books. And if you create yeah. these massive conglomerates that, you know, own more assets than the entire country, you know, more than entire states or nations, then it's very hard for you to, you know, go to them and say, hey... Don't do that. Yeah, I think this is, that's a, such a fundamental point and one that kind of gets glossed over when folks say things like, well, why is Bernie different? There's so many people on the left who are arguing mm. the same thing. It's this understanding that you can try to regulate, you can try to claw back some of the um, inequity, right? Or you can understand that the system is fundamentally going to be advantaged to those with wealth and power and say that if membership on a board is what's enabling people to make decisions that are contrary to the interests and needs of the people who are working at the company, then you just need to make, make sure that people who are working on the company are at the board and have a voting mm -hmm. rights on the board so they can stop things at the root. You know, that you can't tinker around the edges, that you really have to establish democracy fundamentally um, and have owner uh, worker ownership of all of these companies. And that's enormously popular in the United States. If you want to create policies that benefit and protect workers, empower workers. It's as simple as that. Where do you get the rest? Where does it come from? Two things. Let me Senator respond. Sanders, respond. In two ways. Joe, you talked yeah. about working with Republicans and getting things done. But you know what you also got done? And I say this as a good friend. You got the disastrous war in Iraq done. No. You got a bankruptcy bill which is hurting 
middle-class families all over this country. You got trade agreements like NAFTA and PNTR with China done, which have cost us 4 million jobs. And let's get to Medicare for all. Let's be honest. We spend twice as much per person as do the people of any other major country on Earth. And the answer is, if we have the guts, and I would like to see the Democratic Party have that guts, to stand up to the drug companies and the insurance companies and tell them that the function of health care is to guarantee care to all people, not to make $100 billion Senator, in profit. If you, we Senator. stood together, we could create v the greatest health care system Biden, in the respond. world. I want to quickly note that the $100 billion <laughs> in profit line is actually an undercount. I, I helped come up with that number. <laughs> we were just counting the profits of the pharmaceutical industry and the insurance industry. And that's just the top 10 pharma companies and the top 10 insurers. Mm -hmm. It is way more than $100 billion if you do the entire healthcare industry. That's crazy. I, I mean, that clip was maybe my favorite. Uh, don't come for the bull if you don't want the horns. <laughs> I mean, Bernie Sanders uh, has been, you know, said you know, that people have been saying that he's not being as aggressive toward the other candidates. People have wanted to see a little bit of heat. And I think that you definitely saw it in this debate. There are records. People have to justify their records. And for most people, having a long record is a liability. And the fact that both Bernie Sanders and Joe Biden have been national politicians for a really long time, and Bernie Sanders is able to run on his record, and Joe Biden has to justify his, tells you everything that I think you need to know. But yeah. And it's when people say, well, Bernie hasn't always been a Democrat. Well, being a Democrat hasn't always led to great outcomes. You know, it's like Bernie said, the disastrous <laughs> war in Iraq. Uh, the bankruptcy bill, which was passed on a bipartisan basis, and let's give credit to Senator Elizabeth Warren, who mm. can also tell you all the bad things in that bill, and trade deals. Trade deals. The Clint, Starting with the Clinton administration, working through the Bush administration on a bipartisan basis, were these trade deals that were backed by the biggest companies in America, yeah. opposed by all the leading unions, and guess who was right? The companies made money and workers lost jobs. And Bernie was saying this the whole time, and people were saying, no, Bernie, that's not going to be true. And yeah. We prize bipartisanship and civility to the point that we care more about process than outcomes. And Bernie, this is what he started saying in 2016, saying, no, outcomes matter because outcomes are what matter to the American people. And frankly, over the past 30 years, outcomes haven't been great for working people. Yeah. You, you can't teach good judgment. Mm -hmm. Why is your, your approach more likely to beat President Trump? I'll tell you why. Please and he is the radical... Reason why. It's what the American people want. Yes. All right? The American people do not want tax breaks for billionaires. They want the rich to start paying their fair share of taxes. Poll came out yesterday. 71% of Democrats support Medicare for all. The people of this country understand that we've got to make public colleges and universities tuition free. And more and more Americans, including Republicans, understand we need bold action if we're going to save this planet for our children and our grandchildren. The way you win an election in this time in history is not the same old, same old. You have to inspire people. You have to excite people. you got to bring working people and young people and poor people into Better, the political process because they know you stand for them, not corporate America. Bernie beats Trump. Bernie beats Trump. We've been talking about it a long time. This past week, there was a poll that showed uh, that Bernie is the only person who outpolls Trump in Iowa. He has gotten more donations from Iowans than any other candidate in this race. 
And despite that, somehow the narrative that came out, that an article was written up about that fact that that described everybody, that the title is something like um, two other candidates um, lose to Trump as opposed to Bernie Sanders, the only one who beats Trump, basically, again, doing the Bernie blackout and erasing it from the narrative. We all know it's true. Well, this is the thing when people call Bernie a radical. It, it actually, in many ways, he's the most practical politician in America. He says, what if we propose things that everyone wants? <laughs> people might want to vote for that. Not like a weird half version. Right. Or something that's almost like a foggy mirror image of like <laughs> the thing people are asking for. No. People want health care. People want college education. People want good paying jobs. It isn't complicated stuff. We can do the things every other major country does. And if we do that and we offer people an actual choice and, you know, a dis contrast with Trump's endless lies, Trump's egregious corrupt and Trump's just funneling the people's money away to his friends in corporate America, then we are not only going to win an election. That's how we start a political revolution. But I think at the end of the day, what I appreciate is that we have got to end the hatred that Trump is fostering on our people, the divisiveness, trying to divide us up by the color of our skin or where we were born or our sexual orientation or our religion. And there is no job that I would undertake with more passion than bringing our people together around an agenda that works for every man, woman, and child in this country rather than the corporate elite and the 1%. A progressive agenda that stands for all is the way that we transform this country. I mean, that's basically what you just said, Tyson. Yeah. I mean, I'm just quoting from the master himself. <laughs> Tyson 2028. 20, <laughs> <laughs> no, but, uh, you know, Bernie said in the earlier part of that answer, he said, you know, look, Bernie has worked across the aisles repeatedly. He passed this bill with uh, the Veterans Choice Act with John McCain, the most comprehensive veterans legislation in the past 40 years. It's so good that Trump literally every speech he gives claims credit for it, <laughs> even though it passed in 2014. <laughs> but we all know, like, linear time is something well beyond Donald Trump. Uh and you know he's worked with uh, Mike Lee to pass the uh, to pass the first use of the War Powers Resolution since it was created to you know say we America should not be facilitating Saudi Arabia's disastrous war in Yemen that's murdering you know so many innocent people causing mass famine chaos. But the point being though that like you know so Bernie's done all this Bernie's worked across the aisles and he's always managed to find a way though to do it to push the progressive agenda forward. Mm -hmm. It's not working across the aisle in order to just just to say you work across yeah, the aisle. Yeah, to kneecap Democrats. Doesn't be dirty. Yeah, where it's more important to do the process over the substance. Right. So it's like you can work with anyone to pass things that are good for people. Yeah. The point is that we're doing things that people want, that we're creating a progressive America that will inspire the next generation, that will get people to come out the vote, to bring, to bump up our so, such, such low voter participation. Yeah. You know, the most likely, the one of the best indicators of whether you're going to vote is your income and your education. And that's pretty rough because, you know, that's always going to be, you're more likely to vote the smaller segment of the population you are. And the vast majority of the population... You know. Yeah, and to look at the root causes of that, I mean, sometimes people evoke that stat and it's a reason to say, well, let's not offer policies that are of interest to the people who don't vote. Let's not attend to that group 
because it doesn't matter, they're not going to vote anyway. Instead of looking at the causation there and maybe saying the reason that those people don't vote is because they've seen politician after politician, decade after decade, promise and promise and see nothing really materially change in their life. And what this revolution is kind of banking on is that we're able to turn out those groups that have been historically ignored because they don't comprise the average normal voter population. And that by turning them out, if young people, uh, if working class people vote in the numbers that wealthy, rich people have been voting in for the history of this country, then we will see a political revolution. It's a moral imperative to create a politics that appeals to the vast majority of the American people. The idea that you wouldn't is just sad. That's it for this week. Thank you all so much for all you've done to help us have such an amazing week. Thank you for attending the rally if you could, for door knocking, for talking to your family and friends, for sharing information about the campaign on social media, and for all of your record-setting contributions. Let's work together to make every week as epic as the week that Bernie announced he's back. As always, let us know what you think at hearTheBurn at BernieSanders.com or send us a tweet with the hashtag HearTheBurn. If you haven't already, please take a moment to rate, review, and like us on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, or wherever you're listening. As always, transcripts will be up soon. Till next week, 